Well, that might have been a new song to some of you, but wasn't that a great message? Anybody need to hear that this morning? I did. You may have heard that about 50,000 bumblebees were recently found dead in a Target parking lot in Wilsonville, Oregon. Their deaths were traced to an insecticide sprayed on local safari trees. What you may not have heard is that this afternoon, 2 o'clock, in the same Target parking lot, a memorial service will be held for the bees. You're actually not sure what category to put that in, are you? You don't know if you're supposed to laugh. Memorial service organizer Roselle Medina said on the Facebook page announcing the event, the service will, quote, memorialize these fallen life forms and talk about the plight of the bees and their importance to life on earth. Now, don't misunderstand me. This is truly a bad story. An investigation is underway to determine if laws were violated in the application of the insecticide. And I want to remind us that God commanded us to care for His earth, and so I believe that Christians should be involved in right ecology and environmentalism. But seriously, a memorial. Maybe it's a good idea to get the message across, I guess. Medina said he would actually bring food to serve that requires bees for pollination. (laughs) But exactly what will be said at the eulogy? Funerals provide an opportunity to reflect on the life of the deceased. In fact, the word eulogy actually means good words. It's that time in the service when people share good words, good memories or thoughts about the person who has passed away. 50,000 life forms. Through the years, there has been a significant evolution in the giving of these eulogies. For example, did you know, I did not, but did you know that in the older versions of the Episcopal Church's common book of prayer, at a funeral service, and this is what directed the, 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 the priest, this is what you're supposed to do, you never mentioned the name of the deceased. Can you imagine going to a funeral, you never mentioned their name. Later, ministers became responsible for sharing eulogies about the person. I can remember in my early days um, as a pastor, after a death, I would meet for hours with the family, taking copious notes to make sure that I shared what they wanted shared. Now, somewhere along the way, funerals started cutting out the middleman. Friends and family members started sharing the eulogies, while members are now responsible to share the hope of the gospel. So, I understand it, there, there are even, you might need to note this, there are even online eulogy writing services to help you craft your words. Found an article in the Wall Street Journal addressing this whole issue. It said, just as more weddings are officiated by friends and relatives, mourners 
increasingly are turning to friends and family to speak at funerals. People are less, also less likely uh, than ever to have a personal relationship with members of the clergy. That's sad. Um, a, a rabbi or minister might welcome the mourners and, and give a eulogy that puts an individual's death into the context of the broader religious canon. That's special. Uh, the clergy may also discuss the official resume of the deceased. That's obituary. Uh, naming family members and schooling and then turn to the family and friends to speak. The article actually went on to say this. Today's funerals are shielding mourners from facing the sorrow of death, says theologian Thomas Long. A good funeral is now marked by the level of laughter, he says, adding that non-clergy officiants are becoming MCs. Ouch. That's, that's not meant to be a criticism, just an observation. I, I suppose laughter is one way to deal with the loss associated with death. But what's, but what's my point? I only shared the B story because I looked up eulogies online and found the B story. I mean, come on. That was funny. <laughs> what's my point in talking about eulogies? With the way things are now, the people you know best... Excuse me, the people who know you best, who live with you, work with you, maybe even the ones who are seated next to you, are likely to give your eulogy. You might want to start working on that. Because here's my question. What are they going to say about you? Let's not wait till the funeral. Let's ask some people right now. I'm looking through the audience, identifying some faces. What will those who know you best say? I know sometimes you sit through a funeral, and when you get done, you wonder if you were at the right service <laughs> because the memories, the eulogies were so sanitized and fabricated that little truth was communicated. And I suppose that you could hold out hope that they will fabricate your eulogy. What if they don't? If someone were to stand up right now and talk about you truthfully, what would they say? Hold on to that thought. We just started a study in the book of Colossians last week. We found that the letter was written by Paul to the church at Colossae during his imprisonment in Rome. He probably wrote about the same time, wrote it at about the same time that he wrote Ephesians and Philemon, lots of similarity in those books, plus he sends them by the same mailman, Tychicus, uh, to, to all three places, presumably at the same time. Several things to remember about last week. Paul did not start the church in Colossae. Truth is, he had never even been there. It was likely during his three-year ministry in nearby Ephesus when, when the gospel was heard throughout Asia Minor, that Epaphras, uh, this is a man from Colossae, heard the gospel, believed it, and took the message back to his hometown, as well as to Laodicea and Hierapolis. Apparently, churches were started there. Now, Epaphras had, had, had come to Rome to see Paul, and he had brought a report about the church in Colossae. 
Yes. Uh, The report included the presence of of false teachers who were somehow attacking the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ. Paul is going to address that major purpose of the letter. He even tips his hat to the problem right here at the beginning, as we'll see in a few minutes. But after the traditional salutation in the first couple of verses, he jumps into a thanksgiving about the people of Colossae, specifically thanking God about what he has heard about them. In other words, I want you to know that Epaphras showed up and told Paul about the people at the church there and and there were some really good words. It was a good eulogy that Paul heard about them. Listen to what Paul says about the church in Colossae in chapter 1, verses 3 and following. He says, We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, just as in all the world also, and it is also constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you, also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from a Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf. Listen, he he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. Those are some really good words about the church in Colossae. Here's Here's my question. What do people say about Alliance Bible Fellowship? What do people say about the people who attend here? What do people say about you? Paul actually follows the letter writing form of the day. I didn't have this outline ready for you last week. Let me put it on the screen. It's just a common letter form. After identifying himself as the writer and then the letter's recipients, the church at Colossae, after his typical greeting of grace and peace, he launches into this thanksgiving for his readers. That was protocol for letters written at that time then usually the thanksgiving for the readers is typically followed by a prayer for them, typically a prayer for their physical health. Paul kind of does that, only he prays for their spiritual health, which we'll see next week. But this morning, he offers this prayer of thanksgiving for them, and by doing so, he talks about some things that he had heard from Epaphras. In other words, Epaphras, you see, stood up and said, let me tell you about my friends in my hometown, and these were some really good words. And the thread of the good words running through the the book of Colossians is this. These people were gospel-centered people, gospel-centered people, and that's what I want us to be known as at Alliance Bible Fellowship. Those people at Alliance are really serious about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me give you the outline of this one, that, that those verses that we just read, one long sentence in the Greek. I'm going to talk about public thanksgiving and prayer. We're going to talk about uh, the cause of his thanksgiving, what Paul was thankful for, and all of that comes through the power of this gospel, starting with that first point. 
Now, I say public thanksgiving for at least a couple of reasons. First, it, it's public in that Paul writes this letter to the church and, and starts with, we always, the word always appears in the end in the NAS, probably belongs at the beginning, we always give thanks to God. You need to understand that this letter as all letters that were, were sent at this time, would have been read publicly. People would have been sitting in the house church, and, and they would have all heard the words at the same time. And the first words out of Paul's mouth after the traditional uh, salutation were, we always give thanks for you. Whenever we pray for you, which we do rather regularly, we are always thanking God for you. And, and then he's going to go on to tell them, why? Now listen to me. We should do that more here. We should intentionally thank God publicly for people. Do you know that by nature people are prone to talk, share verbally and publicly about the negative, the salacious. I mean, after all, it's good gossip. But we are not as quick to share thanksgiving. Just this week, Tana and I uh, went to Richmond, Kentucky to participate in her brother's retirement ceremony from the U.S. Army. It was kind of a, kind of a big deal. He had served for 27 years, full colonel, all that. Uh, and there was actually a second ceremony that included a change of command where this one-star general transferred the colors of the unit from the outgoing commander to the incoming um, commander. During both ceremonies, the general... The, the, the outgoing commander, that was her brother, and the incoming commander were very quick to share praise and thanks for lots of different people, to, for, for the role of families, wives, and children for their contributions to the work of the United States Army, as well as the, the, the rank and file um, soldiers and their families and, and, and the employees at this depot and, and their families. I mean, Thanksgiving was going everywhere, publicly. Tana leaned over to me and said, they do this better than the church does. Ah. R yeah. Public Thanksgiving. We should be careful to give public thanks for people and their work in the cause of Christ. And I want you to know that I am going to try to do better with that. S starting with, you heard the reports of, of David and, and Doug about these community outreaches that have been happening over the last few months. Dinners to first responders and, and our community garage sale yesterday. I want you to know that that took tons of work from lots of different people. I know that you, you don't do it for the recognition, but I want to Thank God for you this morning. Cooking meals, delivering meals, eating meals with people you don't know, those first responders, showing public appreciation for them, donating, sorting, setting up all week long into the evening hours. I don't think David got home later than 8 o'clock every night this week. Coming yesterday at 6 o'clock in the morning, good thing since people started arriving at 6.30, and interacting with people you don't know. It was incredible, and I want you to know I thank God for you. 
It was unbelievable. If you missed it, you missed a big deal. I want you to notice to whom this thanksgiving is directed. It is to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. By doing so, Paul reminds them, and frankly us, that the good that we do, the good we did yesterday, last week, over the past few months, is ultimately, listen, is ultimately the result of the Father's enabling grace in our lives through the finished work of the Son. The good that you do, I know that we tend to think that we're good people. The good that you do is through the enabling grace of the work of God because of the finished work of His Son in your life. In other words, lots of public praise and thanksgiving could lead to lots of very proud people. But thanksgiving rightly directed, reminding us of God's activity in our lives is most appropriate. I'm going to work on that and, and encourage you to do the same. The second reason that I say that this thanksgiving and, and prayer was public is because Paul uses words like, we give thanks and we are praying for you. I say we are praying because the word praying at the end of the verse is, is, is plural, the we is likely Paul and Timothy, maybe some of his other companions. The point is, this public thanksgiving to God for the Colossians and this public prayer refers to lots of people or several people praying together for the Colossians. He says, when we pray and we do it together, we pray for these things. It's not just me, Paul, praying. It is when he prays, he prays with others for others. We need to do that better. Prayer is meant to be both a private and public endeavor. Our hearts are knit together as we pray for each other and for others. We need to do that better. There are some ways that we do that. When you share your requests each week on that connection card and drop it in the offering plate, we do send that out, unless you mark confidential. And it goes, it goes to people, hundreds of people in our church who pray for your requests. We regularly send out uh, additional prayer alerts as we become aware of them. If you are part of this church, you call Alliance your home, and you are not part of the prayer alert, you need to sign up so that you can get regular requests, and we together can join our hearts in praying for the needs of God's people. But I believe that we can do a better job praying together publicly as we become aware of needs. We can do that in a number of different ways as we pray for each other uh, during our gatherings. I, I, I love it when I, when, when I see a group of people, you know, not just standing around talking, nothing wrong with that, but, not, but, but, but actually see three or four, five, six people standing and praying about a specific need. We do that on occasion when we ask you to come forward with particular needs and, and the elders and their wives, then pray for you. Here's a question. What happens if you have a prayer need when we don't offer that public time? Well, again, you could certainly ask others to pray for you. I hope you do. And, and, and by the way, and by the way, when, when, 
when you say to someone, or better yet, when someone says to you, will you pray about this need? Why don't you do that right then? I don't know if you're like me, but when someone says, will you pray for this? I say, I sure will, and then walk off. Why don't you say, sure will, why don't we do that right now? And why don't we make prayer, public praying together, a priority of who we are? Let me tell you something else that we're going to do. I'm going to start this very soon. I want us to put together a prayer team. I've thought about this for a long time. A group of people who will be willing to hear and hold confidential your needs to pray for you at the end of every service. This, it's not going to be, we're not going to do an altar call or invitation or anything like that. You can call down. The prayer team will be made up of people that we've identified, people that we trust, and they will gather at the, si- at the sides of, of the platform each Sunday, and they'll, they'll be identified by name tag or something like that, and you can go to them and you can, pr- and, and you can ask them to pray with and for you, and they will. And I trust that as a church body, if we see John Smith come up and ask somebody to pray for them, that we'll offer a prayer as well. We can do this better, folks. Become more of a praying body. This brings us to our second point. For what was Paul thankful? What caused him to offer thanks to God in prayer? Verses 4 and 5 tell us. We give thanks to God Since we heard of, there's some things we heard about you. First, your faith in Christ Jesus. Now, I want to remind you that Paul had never been to Colossae. He was not there to witness firsthand their initial salvation, their coming to faith in Christ. But when he heard about it, when Epaphras came and told him, and not only did their faith in Christ Jesus, as they came to faith in Christ, but they heard about its continuing effect. That's the idea of this. That these, these were people of faith. They were living in the sphere of faith. They began with Christ and they continue with Christ. When, when, when Paul heard this, it's causing great joy and thanksgiving. People were believing. People are living the gospel. And Paul got excited. Why? Because I want you to get this. Paul was actually having spiritual grandchildren. Right? He had shared the gospel with Epaphras, who believed it, became his son in the faith, went back, shared the gospel with people in Colossae and Laodicea and Hierapolis, and all of a sudden churches sprang up, and Paul had spiritual grandchildren. It doesn't get any better than that. I know we get excited about grandchildren. We should. Yeah, I want to see the pictures. But do you have spiritual grandchildren? And do you get as excited thanking God for His saving grace in their lives, even though you've never seen their face? Paul hadn't. No email, no digital pictures that could be sent, no missionary prayer letters that had the glossies. No, he'd never seen them. Second thing that he heard, that Paul heard about, uh, uh, heard about from Epaphras that brought Thanksgiving was their first their faith, second as a result of their faith. That's the kind of the wording here. As a result of their faith was their love for all the saints, because true faith in Christ brings love. The word is agape, which is that intense self-sacrificing love. When you are listen to me. 
when you are truly redeemed, as a, res- as a result, there is love for God, of course, what He has done for us in the person of His Son. Yeah, we, we love Him, but not only love for God because of the right relationship with Him, but also love for each other, for others who are saints, brothers and sisters in Christ, made so by the work of Christ. True saving faith brings love for one another. Notice, for all the saints, not just a select few, not just your inner circle, not just for the ones you think are most lovable, for all saints, for all those who have believed, their brothers, their sisters. Listen, true faith brings true love for one another. I have said this over and over. Get used to it. I'm going to say it as long as I am your pastor. Jesus said in John chapter 13, a new command I give to you, that you love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. That we all gather on Sunday morning in the same building? No, we could go watch a basketball game and do that. By your love for one another. People know that we are truly His followers when we love other followers. People who become followers of Christ love God's people. And if you don't, there's a problem. You cannot say, I love Jesus, it's his followers I can't stand. I know that some Christians are particularly annoying. The Apostle John wrote in his first letter, anyone who professes to love God must love God's people as well. If you don't love his people, if we don't love each other, we prove we are not, we prove we are not followers of Christ. We prove that we are not Christians. You say, well, I, that's kind of judgmental. Well, John says it a little bit more, more strongly. If you say you love God, but you don't love His people, you're a liar. Because true salvation results in love for one another. Paul was thankful to God because he heard of the Colossians' love for all the saints. Third thing he was thankful for, verse 5, was hope. Hope. And there you have that Christian trio of faith, hope, and love. But Paul actually here puts a little bit different twist on it. Unlike any of his other writings, it is not only faith, love, and hope, but it is faith and love that spring from hope. Look carefully at verses 3 to 5. Main verb, verse 3, we give thanks. Then he pours out clause after clause, phrase after phrase. We thank God for your faith, which produces love. And all of that is built on the hope that is laid up for you. In other words, you have faith and love as a result of your hope. And this hope, by the way, is laid up in heaven. Now, we, gotta, we, we must always be reminded that hope in the New Testament is not, taking notes, write this down, is not a subjective sentiment of optimism. Not what we're talking about. Subjective uh, sentiment of optimism, a cross-your-fingers hope that something may or may not happen. Hope in the New Testament is built on trust, uh, on a solid trust resting firmly on the foundation of the object believed. Your hope is not based on the, uh, your ability to, 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 to well up hope in you so that it's really, really strong and you have a strong faith and a strong hope. And if you have a weak faith or a weak hope, it's because of you. Wrong. 
Hope is built firmly on the foundation of the object believe it is Jesus Christ. I don't care how strong your faith or hope is. I know how strong he is. You see, we need to get our eyes off ourselves. We need to get our eyes off the strength of my faith, the strength of my hope. And I need to get my eyes on the, on the person believed. And that brings strength. Because Paul even further strengthens that by telling us this faith, I mean, this hope is laid up in heaven. It's laid up in a place that is so secure that no one or nothing can get to it. And, and by the way, it is laid up. Who's the subject of that verb? Most commentators agree that it is God. God has taken this hope. He has laid it up. He has reserved it. Read 1 Peter 1, verses 4 and 5. He has laid it up in heaven for you. It cannot be touched. And this hope, based on the past promises of God, which gives us a, a, a steadfast, rock-solid trust in the future hope, will be fully realized when Jesus comes back. This hope, by the way, is in the, the true message of the gospel. Paul is here taking this jab at these false teachers. You, you've, been, you, you've got these false teachers running around who are kind of saying that, 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 that maybe what you've heard isn't right. Maybe Jesus isn't enough. Maybe he isn't quite supreme. Maybe he isn't quite sufficient. What you've heard is the message of the true gospel. It's right. It's secure. It's found in heaven. And those false teachers can't touch it. Brings us to our third point. Having mentioned the gospel, Paul goes on to talk about its ongoing power. And, 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 and this is really the foundation upon which this is built. Yet, Paul is thankful that the Colossians built their lives firmly on the gospel. They are gospel-centered people. The gospel is growing in power. Look again at verses 6 and following. This gospel has come to you just as in all the world. It's constantly bearing fruit and increasing. Remember those words, bearing fruit and increasing, even as it's been doing in you since the day you heard it from Epaphras, fellow bondservant, faithful servant of Christ. He informed us of your love. In the spirit. I got so excited about verse 6 this week when I was studying. I'd read it before, but I had never noticed how it supports the ABF mission statement. Our ABF mission statement says this. We are called by the grace of God for the glory of God to become and multiply fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. And, and here Paul tells us the gospel is so powerful, it is going to accomplish that. It is going to cause you to become a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ, and it is going to cause uh, our faith to be multiplied in its increasing. That's what he says. This gospel came to you just as in all the world, constantly bearing fruit, increasing. Those two words are what we mean when we say we are here to become fully devoted followers. In other words, we are fruit-bearing followers followers, and our faith is increasing, that is, it is multiplying. This is, this is what Paul could say about the church at Colossae. Could this be said of the people of Alliance Bible Fellowship? He calls this gospel 
the, the grace of God in truth. He reminds us, he reminds us that this gospel has as its central tenant grace, that unmerited favor of God toward us. And you heard it from Epaphras. That word learn carries with it the idea of discipleship. Some suggest that Paul is actually adding credibility to, to this Epaphras because these false teachers are running around saying, well, what he said was okay, but he says, no, I want you to understand it was the true gospel. What you got from Epaphras was really right and really good. And finally, Paul says, Epaphras told us of your love in the Spirit. Only place in the entire letter that the Holy Spirit is mentioned, just so you know that. But it is a great reminder to us that we love because the love of the Spirit has been poured out on our, in our hearts. So, f- for example, the reason that we love is because of the Spirit pouring out His love in, a, in our hearts. The, 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 the reason that people showed up by the dozens over this past week and, and, and yesterday, Saturday morning, day off, get up at 5, be here by 6, was because of the love of the Spirit that has been poured out in our hearts. So, as we close, I want you to look at that eulogy. Look at those good words that Epaphras shared about the people in the church at Colossae. These were gospel-centered, gospel-powered people whose lives, now listen, were marked by faith in Jesus Christ. Their lives were marked by love for one another. And all of that was built on the rock-solid hope laid up in heaven for them. This gospel then was bearing fruit in their lives as seen in good works. And it was increasing. It was, this, this, this gospel was, was going throughout the world. I want you to think about that just for a minute. The gospel started right there in Jerusalem among the Jews, and it went from Jerusalem to Judea, and then Samaria, and then, and then and in Galilee, and then it went up to, uh, uh, up to Lebanon, and over to Syria, and then into Jordan, and then Paul took it to, to Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, and then he jumped on a ship and went across the Aegean Sea and, and, and planted the gospel in Europe, and the first city to hear the gospel in Europe was Philippi. And this gospel has been spread throughout the planet because Jesus said this this gospel would be preached as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. This gospel is bearing fruit and this gospel is increasing. So my question for us people is what do people say about Alliance Bible Fellowship? What words would they use to describe us? Are they good words? Do they see us as people of faith? Do they see us as people of love? Do they see us as bearing fruit? Do they see us as increasing numbers, not just by rearranging saints, but by evangelism and sharing our faith? And is the Spirit's love evident in our lives? Let's stand for prayer. Father, this, is a, this, this Thanksgiving gives us a little glimpse into the life of the church in Colossae, a, a city that no longer exists. It's just ruins there.
But there was a, there was a time when, the vibrant, when there was a city there, when there was a vibrant body of believers who lived their faith, who loved each other, and who, who, whose vibrant faith was increasing and bearing fruit. Colossae's not there, but we are. We, Alliance Bible Fellowship, live in a community that desperately needs to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Would you make us a people of faith? Would you make us a people of love? Would you build it solidly on the hope of future promises that will be fulfilled? Would you make us, would you, would you, would you pour out your love by your spirit in our hearts. Use us like you did yesterday. Use us that way today, tomorrow, and the day after that. In Christ's name.